Well, good morning. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7 with me this morning. Uh, we're continuing in the story of the early church and, uh, and how the early church thrived. And uh, that's been our topic over the last few months is thriving. We've talked about thriving in our individual lives and then thriving as a church. And uh, the church in those early days was under opposition and uh, persecution. And yet thousands of people were coming to follow Jesus. And, um, and I wonder how at times that, that really played out. But one of the things I think you'll see is that the church was very focused. Uh, they knew who they were serving, they knew what they were doing, what they were called to do, uh, why they were doing what they were called to do, and and they really didn't vary off of that. Um, focus is something that we need in life, and um, very early in my life I saw the necessity of focus on, on a farm, and you're working. Uh, you can get hurt very easily if you're not focused. Your mind is wandering and you're thinking about other things. Uh, it's easy to uh, to get hurt. I have uh, some scars on myself. I've got a scar on this hand uh, where uh, where a knife went through. I was cutting the tails off of not cutting the tails off of cows, the the hair on the end of the tail, and I slipped with my knife, cut through. You could see the little. Um, uh, tendons moving and and the bone down there and you, you need to be focused and um, we see that today in the life of Stephen there was a particular focus that Stephen had and um, and he remained true to cause true to purpose because that focus wasn't shaken I don't know about you but uh, sometimes my focus can um, drift Sometimes we find ourselves where we never intended to be in life. Sometimes we find ourselves uh, caught up in things that we never intended to get caught up in. Sometimes life just goes by and uh, years go by and we thought our life would have been different. We thought um, our uh, ability to cope with life would have been better. We think many times that our walk with God would have been stronger and it comes because we lose focus and God knows that if we're going to thrive in difficult times we need to keep a single focus and that focus is Jesus keeping our eyes on him and uh, it, it's it's not it's it's easy to say but it's hard to do there's a lot of things in life like that. Easy to say, hard to do. Husbands love your wives. Easy to say, sometimes hard to do. Hard to do. Wives respect your husbands. Easy to say, hard to do. And so today, and uh, as we look at uh, the scripture in Acts seven, we see that uh, it's a continuation of where we were last week. And it says, and the high priest said, are these things true? Are they accurate? Are they so? And, and then we have to kind of go back to last week to say, okay, what are, what's he talking about there? 
and that's these false accusations that have been made against Stephen. Remember last week we have been introduced to Stephen. He is one of those uh, seven uh, who were called to be deacons in the church. If you remember, the uh, widows who were Greek were not getting taken care of in the same way that the Hebrew uh, widows were. And they brought the complaint to the uh, disciples, the apostles, and uh, and they said, well, we, we haven't got time for this. We've got other things that we need to be doing. And so their plan was to call out seven. And they, they really focused on character. And they said, like, here's the kind of men that you need to have serving in this role. And right at the top of the list, we have, we have Stephen. And, of course, Stephen... Um, was set as an example of someone who did that role very well, someone who um, had respect in the church, who had the character that was needed to perform that task, and uh, and so uh, there was opposition against that. Always when there's movement forward, there's opposition, pushback against, and and that can come from a number of areas. And in this case, it was the religious leaders that were around them and and they hauled Stephen in and uh, we find that they make false accusations against him and uh, he is on trial. In verse two it says, and he said, this is Stephen, hear me brethren, and fathers. So he's talking about younger men, older men. He's asking the group, the Sanhedrin, the council, uh, to listen to him. And then he takes them on this long history lesson. And and it's kind of like a jackrabbit jumping through Israel's uh, history. And uh, and you kind of wonder at some some places, is there a point to where he's going? And and he starts off with with Abraham. And, uh, and we're going to read quickly through this and kind of pull this apart as we're going. So um, open your Bibles and follow along. Verse 2, the, the, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Leave home. Uh, you're going from here and you're going to go there. And uh, he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this country, to Israel. So he moves and stays. And as his father dies, he moves further, in which you're now living, where modern-day Israel is. Verse 5, but he gave him no inheritance in it. He didn't get to call it home. He didn't really get to settle. He was a nomad, and uh, it says not even a foot of ground. Uh, Abraham was not a house builder. He was a roamer, and he had uh, sheep and goats and cattle, and and it was a nomadic life. But so he kind of got the land, but he didn't really settle it the way that we think of settling land. And yet, still, even when he had no child, when Abraham was, they were childless, remember that story, he promised, God promised, that he would give him as a possession 
an inheritance to his descendants after him. Problem is, is how do you have an inheritance? How do you leave something when, when you have no children? And, and that was the big obstacle of faith for Abraham and Sarah. And remember, Sarah wrestled with that. And, and she didn't do as well with that as Abraham did. And, uh, and then in 6, but God spoke to this effect in this, in this manner that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land. Now, today we think of aliens, outer space. That's not what it means. It means a people without citizenship. They were going to move to a foreign land, a land that was not their own, and they were going to be there, but they wouldn't be citizens there. They wouldn't, they wouldn't settle there. There would always be this sense of return, and and uh, we move ahead, and and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage. Whoa, they're in this foreign land, and and they're going to be enslaved. They're going to be reduced to bondage. They're going to be mistreated for four hundred years, and whatever nation does that, they God says, I'll I'll judge them. That's not real comforting. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place in modern-day Israel. So God made himself known to Abraham. God took him on this difficult journey, not just a journey across the country, but a journey of faith that would try him. And so what Stephen is doing is he's, he's telling this to this council, and he's he's weaving history. He's jumping back and forth in history. And one moment he's in Abraham, another moment he's in, in Egypt and the exile. And so Stephen is jumping. He's kind of pulling stuff in, and he's got a point behind all this, and, and he's going to get to the point in a little bit. And then he talks from Abraham to Isaac to Joseph, verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. That was identity, a specific identity as a nation. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So God's building a family. He's building a family that's going to end up be, to be a nation. Verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So now, so like he's gone from Egypt, now he's gone backwards, and he's building the story again. And uh, and uh, he sold into Egypt, and yet God was with him. He wasn't alone, even though it looked like he was alone. Even though his brothers had sold him into slavery, it was an act that would ultimately preserve the family. Verse 10, and and God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions. And read that story through. The life of Joseph was one affliction after another. And he granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God's purposes were met in that, and he made him governor over Egypt, his whole household. Verse 11, now famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it. Our fathers could find no food. So they're back in Israel. Joseph's in Egypt. There's no food to eat. Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt and sent our fathers there the first time. 
On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Told Pharaoh all about his family. Joseph sent word, invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him. And uh, Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased. So remember when the people leave 400 years later. So they come down. Joseph's a big cheese in Egypt. Invites his family during the famine to move to Egypt where there's lots of grain. Remember Joseph had saved grain seven years in the good harvest and then the famine comes seven years of famine there's grain there all the purposes of God even the hard things and uh, and uh, eventually when they leave remember they take uh, their bones Jacob's bones and, and they and they remove his bones and bury him in Shechem and uh, then he moves into Moses, verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, the end of the 400 years, God had assured to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Joseph was not on his radar. What the people of Israel had done for Egypt was, was totally forgotten. Time changes things. And that happens in our lives, happens in churches. I mean, we've seen that this whole spring. Time has changed our world in a matter of, of like six months. This is not the world that we lived in beforehand. This is not something new. This has been going on since Adam. The world changes. Well, uh... Egypt is in the rearview mirror, and uh, uh, Joseph's work is in the rearview mirror, I should say, and it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race. That king mistreated our fathers so that they would ex expose their infants that they would not survive. Remember that king uh, killed the male children. He wanted workers. He only wanted so many and he wanted to make sure that there was not enough for an insurrection and so they are killing the baby boys and in that time Moses was born he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's house and after he had been out, uh, set outside Pharaoh's daughter took him away nurtured him as her own son that story read that uh, in in uh, and that will uh, just, I mean, you'll just see God's fingerprints over everything there. So Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and, and he was a man of power and words and indeed. But when he was approaching the age of 40, he, had, he, he, he wanted to see what was going on with this, these Israelite people, whether he knew or had an inkling. Uh, it's really not really clear, but he sees them treating this people unjustly. And and uh, he defended someone who was being beaten, and he actually took vengeance on those who were oppressing this person by striking down the, the Egyptian who was doing it. He killed them. And he thought that 
they would understand why he did what he did. And on the following day, he appeared to them and they were fighting together. So two, so an Egyptian is beating up an Israeli a, and uh, Moses kills the Egyptian. The next day, two Israelis are fighting together. Uh, he steps in to stop them from fighting. They turn to him and go, what, are you going to kill us too? Um, it's not kind of what he had in mind. Now, this remark, Moses fled. He went, look at the cats out of the bag. Everybody knows about this. It's going to go back to Pharaoh. Um, everybody's going to know, and I'm, and I'm going to be uh, uh, jailed as a murderer. And he goes to the alien land. So he's, he's an alien in a land, and he's going to go to another land and be, still be an alien in another land. And he has two sons there. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, he's 80 now. The angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. Angel there, messenger. Was it an angel, angel? Well, I, I don't think so. Um, God is in this bush. A message from God. This bush that burned but did not burn up. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as it approached it to look more closely. And there came the voice of Yahweh. I am the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses shook with fear, could not venture to look. But Yahweh said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for this where you're standing is holy ground. That time, that moment, Yahweh showing up in his life was a holy encounter. And I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I've come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Who would have thought it? In verse 35, Moses, they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush? This man led them out performing wonders and signs. Interesting because Luke, remember that John and Peter had been doing wonders and signs. And so there's a mental link that John is pulling across here. Signs and wonders, John and Peter signs and wonders Moses as he leads the people out of the captivity in Egypt and uh, and it says that the land of Egypt he leads them out of the land of Egypt in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel and he has this prophetic drop in that that Stephen pulls from another place and he, he drops it in. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah, the one they were waiting for. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Jesus was there. Messiah was there. 
who, who is with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. The Logos of God, the Word of God. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, to the living Word, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. Remember they said like, oh man, I wish I could go back. I mean, we had good onions and leeks and melons in Egypt out here. We just got this manna stuff. I mean, they, they made life difficult. And, uh, and then he kind of hopscotches again, Stephen does, and saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. Moses uh, has led us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. Remember, Moses went up to Sinai. He's going to get the law. So he was on a 40-day camping trip, and, and they don't even last like the 40 days, and they're, they're looking for something else and, uh, and these golden calves that they produce. At that time, they made a calf, verse 41, and brought a sacrifice to the, to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Actually, if you go back into the text, it's like they're having an orgy. They haven't, that means they haven't even hardly gotten out of the land of Egypt and they are committing spiritual adultery against Yahweh. But God turned and delivered them up and to serve the hosts of heaven. You have this whole idolatry thing comes into their lives. And and it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, the stars of the God of Ramphi, the images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And, and, and there was another captivity. They, they just were rebellious all the time. You can cut this out, Becky. Hattie? Hattie? In fact, in verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony, a witness of who Yahweh was. The tabernacle was used was a teaching tool of who God was and how they were to worship him. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which, which you had seen. Saying you had everything you needed to follow God and to stay faithful, and, and you went, like, what's the point of this? Is that that you have no excuse for where you ended up. You lost focus. And then he moves on and talks about Joshua and to David. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon uh, dispossession, possessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers. So they enter Israel finally after 40 years and God uses Joshua and they clean out as well never to the extent God had wanted them to but they 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 had moved into the land and and then he talks about the time of David and David found favor in God's sight and and uh, and asked what he might that he might build a dwelling place for God but but David wasn't able to do that and uh, only Solomon was allowed to build the temple it says in verse 40, 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, 
as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says Yahweh? Or what place is there for me to repose? Where am I going to lay down? Like, am I going to lay down in a temple? Do you think I'm going to go to sleep there? Uh, was it not my hand which made all these things? It's, it kind of it kind of kind of run my mind rings the words of Ed Sheeran, "You need me, I don't need you." God didn't need them, and He didn't need a house, and so Solomon uh, ends up building a place for the people to come and worship. So the temple wasn't for God; the temple was for the people as a point of focus in their worship of Yahweh. And so, what's the point of the history lesson? Like. Like I said, Stephen has bounced all over the place, and he's filled in a huge chunk of Israel's history. And uh, and I go like like what? Why did he do that? Well, we first see their problem in verse fifty-one. You men who are stiff-necked means to be unruly. I slept wrong last night, and I got you know those kinks in your neck. You get that that tendon kind of gets pulled, and and it's like. You guys are stiff-necked. You're, you're hard to control. You're unruly. And uncircumcised in heart and ear. Circumcision was to set them apart. Was that, that this is something unique about this nation. Their ears and their eyes were to be, and their heart were to be circumcised. And it, they weren't set apart in their heart or their ears. And you're always resisting the Holy Spirit would not come under direction you are doing just as your fathers things haven't changed and so this is the point whole point where steve was going see walk them through their history their rebelliousness of their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers back as far as you can go and and he's like you're no you're no different today things have not improved and uh, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute well, there's a question. It's like every prophet that came along, you guys gave them a hard time. They killed those who had, who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. I mean, I don't know if he had in mind John the Baptist here, but I mean, that's exactly what happened to John the Baptizer. He was the one who, who pointed to Jesus that he was the, the Messiah, the promised one. And, and they killed him. And, uh, and you who received the law as ordained by angels did not keep it. It's like you made a big deal. You made a big deal about, about the law and following the law. But you don't do it. It's not what's going on here. And so... Uh, we see the reaction in verse uh, 54 now when they heard this that they did not keep the law that they were the recalcitrant ones uh, and when they heard this they were cut to the quick back to that toenail picture um, that I talked about last week and they began gnashing their teeth so I was trying to think this through like like are they just like like why are the, what is the gnashing? They're so angry, they're shaking, and their and their jaw is quivering, and their teeth are knocking together because they're so angry that they're they are they are shaking, 
uh, completely and uh, uh, Stephen's response in 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven. He was focused. He knew where his help came from. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Reminds me of the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I want to see you. And that certainly describes Stephen's experience. And, and he said, Behold, look. It's an exclamation. I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Isn't it interesting? He's standing at the right hand of God. We usually picture Jesus as seated at the right hand. But here is a saint who is dying and is ready to take his last. He's, 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 like it's it's going to happen any minute. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we see their fury unleashed. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. It, it's like, I, we don't want to hear this. We don't believe this. We, we don't want to hear anything about Jesus. And they rushed at him in one impulse. It's like, it's like a wave. They instinctively as a group, it, the frenzy came upon them to kill. And they were going to, to completely get rid of their enemy. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And one thing I've really noticed around Kitchener is different than where I grew up. Where I grew up near Springfield is like a flat, the bottom of, a, of an old lake. And the ground is as flat as a pancake. And it's clay with loam on top. And we had a stone pile on our farm. But in all the years my grandfather owned it, uh, there was only a pile of stones about maybe 20 inches high and 5 feet across. And, and so stones, we, we didn't have stones. And I came to Kitchener and there's stones everywhere. Our whole backyard is, I can't dig down a foot without hitting a, a, you know, a stone the size of you know, at least half a soccer ball. And there's stone all over the place. And as the Middle East is like that, there's just stone everywhere. And in uh, measuring out death in the Middle East in that time, because not like today where it's lethal injection and electric chair, but I'm going to tell you, if you think those are dainty ways of killing somebody, just read about how violent uh, actually those ways of dying are. This is maybe even a step beyond that. And so they would grab the stones and usually the witnesses would go f throw the first stone. And um, man, I, I mean, I'd be praying that they aimed and got me the very first shot, but I'm, I doubt that Stephen was so lucky. And they would pelt you with stones, I don't know about the size of your hand, maybe a bit bigger uh, at some point, but they would start throwing stones at the person until they kill him. And unconsciousness would come and maybe that fatal blow that one large stone right to the head that would uh, crush the skull and bring the release of death 
no, not a very dainty way to go. And so they begin stoning him. And, and then Luke does what he's done all along as he introduces us to the next major character that's going to come to play. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. One saint dying, the deacon, the table waiter, the one of great character and faith. And at the feet of Saul, the next one who is going to come along at this point, not Paul, but Saul, is standing by the, he says, oh, you want somebody to watch your car? Hey, you can get a better throw if I grab your robe for you. I'll hold the robe for you. You can get a good throw then. And you don't want blood on your robe. Here, I'll lay your robe here. I'll watch it. That was the part that Saul played. And in 59, here's the, here's the end. They went on stoning Stephen, unleashing their fury at his corpse, or soon-to-be corpse. wonder how many stones fell after he was dead already in that fury that led that mob out. He went on stoning Stephen, and he called on the Yahweh, on the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He cried out with a loud voice. Not like the thief on the cross who mocked and angry. But in the words of Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, I love Luke the doctor describes it as he fell asleep and it was over and, and Luke closes the curtain on that scene it's hard to stay focused on the right things I can focus on the wrong things all day long sometimes my anger focuses on things I wished it wouldn't or afterwards I think you know how foolish was that um, I'm easily distracted, hundred times a day. I'm, I'm kind of like the, you know, the, the cartoon where the, where the, uh, the dog is like squirrel, squirrel. I mean, wherever he goes, you should have seen Addie, uh, Hattie was out here earlier, and we had a squirrel on the deck, and I actually cut that part out. I should have, I should have left that in, but I mean, her whole tension was on that squirrel and going back and forth, and she was just like like focused not on me and what I was telling her which was to be quiet and to lay down but focusing on the squirrel and how about you you like me focus on the squirrely things in life instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus like like uh, Stephen did our eyes on Jesus not laying blame not making accusations, not finding fault. That had been easy for Stephen to do. I love the quote here, and I don't know who it's attributed to, so it's, this is not mine, but if Jesus is all we see, 
the faults of others disappear. And that's where Stephen found him. He wasn't looking at the people. In fact, he didn't blame blame on them at all. He was focusing on Jesus and him alone. And uh, they no longer mattered other than to seek forgiveness for them. Opposition is no longer opposition. It's the gateway to the presence of God, and that's what he found. And so beware of negative attraction. I mean, this day, the age that we're in, this time of COVID, I mean, and, I mean, and the whole, uh, all the things happening around, it's easy to get sucked in by the negative. It's easy to let the negative become the focus. Meaning the easiest thing for our church to do would be to focus on all the things that are going wrong and all the things that aren't right and all the delays and difficulties and, and focus on the people around us. That person said this and that person didn't do that. And, and hey, um, our widows were missed or my family was missed or my need in this was missed. Uh, my need to know, my need to to be a part of my need to have a say my need my need my need and that's not the picture that Stephen paints and that's not the picture we see of a church that is aggressively moving forward with the gospel and making great inroads where hundreds if not thousands of people weekly were coming to a place of following Jesus. And so I think in this day and this time that we're in, there is, there is no other time that it is so important to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus. And I think of the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth the distractions, the annoyances, the difficulties will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We don't want to ignore the problems around us. But we want to learn to see them through the eyes of Jesus. Focusing on Him. His way of dealing with things. And so in this day that we find ourselves in isolation and in confusion. And what is our world going to look like after this as a church? We need to keep our eyes in the right place so that we know who we're following. We know why we're here. We know the way that God is working and wants to work through us and in us. That we are, are not like the nation of Israel who was always rebelling, rebelling and having that stiff neck. I hate having a stiff neck. All every day today, I can't even turn to look. I have to kind of turn my whole body to look down the road to see if a car is coming. It hampers everything. And so stiff-necked as a people, as a church, as a congregation, is, is the picture of just not being willing to let God direct us, to turn us left, turn us right. And so that's my prayer for us as a church. 
that we would walk in obedience, that we would walk in a way that follows Jesus. And in the way of Stephen, he did not lose focus. Father, that is our prayer. Keep us focused on you and your son, Jesus, that we would see you and only you, that we would be used by you in this day and this time. And so these things we lay at your feet. Take control. Guide us. Move us. Would we walk in the power of your spirit and we come in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week. Live for him.